0: the book of Acts, and we're in the middle of the cha- of chapter 2, you will recall that in Acts chapter 2, uh, mm-hmm. Jewish people from all over the world were in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, The the believers were gathered together and praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down and baptized the Holy Spirit, which was the formation of the church. And they began to speak in other tongues, other languages from around the world. And a large crowd gathered around, and they realized that you know they they were these Galileans were speaking their own native languages miraculously without having studied those languages. And uh, then i was just going to begin reading here in verse. Twelve, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And so then Peter begins preaching in the open air there to a large crowd, very large crowd, that had gathered. And he unlocks spiritual truth to these Jewish people. The Lord had given Peter and the other apostles the the keys to the kingdom, a a metaphorical expression meaning uh, the ability to open understanding to spiritual truths, particularly with regard to the church. What spiritual truth was hidden from these Jewish people that they needed to hear and understand? We said last time they, they had the entire Bible that existed at their time in their hands and it was read regularly. They knew about Adam and Eve, about Noah. They knew about sin and sacrifices, the promise of the Messiah and spiritual and national restoration. What spiritual truth did they yet need to have unlocked for them? We said that that spiritual truth was that that Messiah, the Savior, whom they knew about the Messiah, they knew about a coming Savior, the final prophet, the fulfillment of all the types of the and all of the types in the Old Testament, the Passover Lamb, the sacrifices, the manna, the water in the wilderness, the Son of David and rightful King of Israel that God had promised—that that person was Jesus of Nazareth, whom they had crucified. That's what they needed to understand. And but the Jews that Peter were talking to were predominantly people who had rejected Jesus's claims to be Messiah. And as a result, as we said, they had crucified him. You couldn't possibly have come up with a more unwelcome message than what Peter was going to share with them. So Peter wisely deals, as we go through this, he deals with all of the objections that they could raise before announcing the conclusion. That is, this Jesus whom they crucified was in fact Messiah and Lord. Continuing on in verse 15, so Peter says, listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and bellows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As we take a look at Peter's introduction to this message in which he quotes from the prophet Joel to explain what's going on, perhaps the first thing that jumps out at at us are the dramatic supernatural signs in Joel's prophecy. We just read them. But we also notice that those things didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. And in fact, as we look back over time, they haven't happened yet. Most of the things in verses 17 to 20 didn't happen here at the time that Peter was preaching this. Peter is really saying that what happened here will be like what happened, what will happen in the days as spoken of by Joel. Bible teachers point out that biblical prophecy often only has a partial fulfillment at first and then a complete fulfillment at a later date. happens very frequently. Even the outpouring of the Spirit here at Pentecost wasn't on all people, as is mentioned in the book of Joel. Not even all believers, only those that were in Jerusalem. But what had happened was like what will happen in the last days. And so we have a couple of expressions here in this passage that are worth noticing and discussing. In verse 17, he begins by saying, as he quotes from Joel, in the last days, God says. And then in verse 20, we read the day of the Lord. And elsewhere in the scripture, it uses a synonym, the day of God. And so the question is, are we in the last days? What are the last days or the latter days or the days to come, depending on the expression that's being used at the time? I thought it'd be worthwhile just taking a minute to consider those expressions. Well, just like I suggested with the term kingdom of heaven, these terms don't have a very precise, specific meaning either. If you're looking for the last days, you want it starts here and ends here, it's, it's not exactly that simple. The meaning needs to be derived from the context in which it is used. The most important aspect of that context is who is being spoken to in the passage. Is it the nation of Israel or the church? Let's take a look at a couple of passages. You have to turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. Verse one. This is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, is talking Judah in Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, "Come, let's go up to the mountains of the Lord." Mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against other nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is going to happen in the last days. The last days of what? The last days of the nation of Israel, of course, spoken to there, even mentions to whom he is speaking. The last days, in other words, what is going to happen in the last days of Israel? Well, I've got my chart here again, and uh, so we can see the last days. Uh, speaking with a passage that we read in Joel, of all the wonderful things that are going to happen during the time of the millennium, when the nation of Israel has been regathered, and the Lord reigns. On the throne of David, over the land of Israel, and and that that kingdom extending eventually over, over the whole world, the blessings that come as a result of the nation of Israel and their Messiah. So we read, but we also read, as we just read from the book of Joel, as well as many other Old Testament passages, when it speaks of the last days of Israel, Uh, We we see all the horrible judgments uh, that are going to fall. The the time of great trouble that's ahead are referred to as the last days as well. And so really, when you're speaking of the nation of Israel and talking about the last days, it might be the time during the tribulation all the way through the millennium. Those things that are yet to come, the last days of the nation of Israel. Well, what about the church? Are we in the last days? Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. beginning in verse one, we read, "In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And so here the expression last days refers really to the very beginning of when the Lord Jesus came here was born in Bethlehem. Uh, if you start, you know if you wrote this, well I will. There we go. Go all the way back to the beginning. You've got all of this time. And then by the time you get to the Lord Jesus, now, now things are very different. The Messiah has come these last days, ushering the Messiah and beyond period of time. And so really, the last days for us began when the Lord Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. But its most common use with regard to the church it has to do with special reference to the decline and the problems. In the church at the end of the age. I'll just read one reference, Second Timothy chapter three. Beginning in verse one. Paul writes, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, describing those who call themselves Christians and are part of the church engaging in all sorts of sinful, wicked behavior unashamedly. And we certainly are in those days right now. Peter in Second Peter chapter 3 verse 3 refers to the last day in the last day scoffers will come and mock the idea of the Lord coming again. We certainly are in those days as well. And then in John's gospel, John uses the, and only in John's gospel, John uses the term last day to refer to the resurrection, particularly of believers. And, uh, you know, whole string of verses there, particularly in John chapter six. And so the last days, you simply need to understand it's, it's it, you know, something different than what was before, and it depends on the context as to what it means. So here, back in Acts chapter two, let me get back there. In Acts chapter 2, though the church has just begun, Joel's prophecy has to do with the last days of the nation of Israel, particularly the great blessings of the kingdom age or millennium, as well as the uh, horrible signs of the tribulation. But what these people were here experiencing. The action of the Holy Spirit, the the speaking in tongues and so forth, uh, were a sample of the glories that are to come in that future time. In verse 20, it also mentions the day of the Lord, before the great and glorious day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that period of time when God, when it's his day, it's a man's day. As you look around, people seem to be in charge of things, or at least trying to be in charge of things. We're kind of allowed to do what we want. There will come a day when God is going to openly intervene in the affairs of men for both judgment and great blessing. And so that will be the day of the Lord when he's clearly in charge, taking charge and in charge. Begins with really the rapture and ends with the cleansing of the earth and new heavens. and the the new earth. Well, Acts chapter 2, verse 21. He ends his quote from Joel with this verse, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Peter closes his quotation from Joel with a promise that is good for people of all ages. For all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The invitation is open to everyone, and those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then that actually leads us into the question that he takes up next. Who is the Lord? Verse 22, Paul reads. Paul, Paul speaks to Peter, says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So Peter calls upon the fact that there were many there in that crowd. Some had traveled from a long distance and probably hadn't seen the miracles. But there were plenty of Jewish people who could testify that Jesus had done wonderful, amazing miracles, wonders, and signs. He had healed the sick. He had given sight to the blind. He had cast out demons. He had even raised the dead. It says miracles, wonders, and signs. Miracles emphasizing that these were supernatural events, things that could not be done by an ordinary human being. They were wonders. They created amazement. Uh, They they drew a crowd uh, to to follow. And it caused people to consider what asked the question, what is the significance of this miracle? Who is this that's performing these miracles? In signs? Sign points to something. Back in the Old Testament, part of the prophecies that were to be uh, signs that pointed to the Messiah would enable the Jewish people to identify the Messiah when it came were the miracles. And the miracles that I just listed were all prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would do. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Peter now says he was handed over to you. We know what you did, okay? He was handed over to you for for what you considered to be justice, to be crucified. He was handed over to you, but he was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The fact that he died was not an accident. It wasn't something that, Was simply the direct cause of your actions. God had planned this, God had planned the cross long beforehand. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that we were redeemed with the quote, precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So we we know that God knew long beforehand, from the from the creation of the world, from the beginning of time, this was God's plan that the Savior would come, that He would suffer on the cross, taking the penalty for our sins, that making a way so that sinful people can be redeemed from their sins and have an eternity in heaven. This was this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And you, all of you fellow Jewish people, you took him, and with the help of wicked men, or men without the law, or wicked hands, depending on what translation you have, in other words, the Gentiles, you actually collaborated with the Gentiles in order to get him crucified. Not only did you crucify him, you stooped to, Co-conspira co-conspiracizing, that's not the right pronunciation, or it's not even a word, but to, to with the gentiles to have this done. This was God's plan, but Peter points out both Jews and Gentiles were culpable. We'll read later in the book of Acts. You know, yes. Was the Lord Jesus murdered or did he have his life? Well, His life. Were they guilty of murder? Did they commit murder? Absolutely. They are referred to later on in the book of Acts as you murdered the author of life. And so they're both true. Uh, God and his sovereignty have this planned out ahead of time. They are absolutely accountable for every action that they did which was voluntary and of their own sinful nature. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Here we read that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So God raised him from the dead. Why was it impossible? I think we can answer a couple of things. I can't find a specific verse of scripture to support this. Maybe you can... Give me a hand with that at some point. But it just seems obvious that the perfect son of that as the perfect son of God and as the perfect man, it was necessary for Christ to rise from the dead. That is, it was only right and just for him to rise from the dead. And point two, which Peter is now going to draw out, is that it was necessary in order for the prophecies of the Old Testament to be fulfilled. Prosperities of the Old Testament demanded the resurrection of the Messiah. And so that's what Peter goes on to next. Verse 25. Verses 25 to 28 are quoted from Psalm 16. We'll go ahead and read verse 25. David said about it. So Psalm 16 was written by David and now Peter is going to quote from Psalm 16 to substantiate that the Old Testament prophecies demanded the resurrection of the Lord. we read here David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices my body my body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your holy ones see decay. you made known to me the paths of life you will fill me with joy in your presence. Psalm 16, David foresaw that the Lord would live in fellowship with the Father. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will live in hope. The The Lord would die, but he would not be left in the grave. His body would not decay. No, he would rise from the dead. Back in verse um, 26, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will also live in hope. There was this fellowship that the Lord had with the Father while he was here on, on earth. Verse 27, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor nor will you let your Holy One see decay. As I said, the Lord would die, but he would not be left there in the grave. His body would not decay. He would be raised from the dead. And in verse 28, we read, you have, you have made known to me the paths of life. You've, there is the resurrection, a reference okay. to the resurrection. In the second half of that verse, you will fill me with joy in your presence. In your presence, glorification. So death, burial, resurrection, and then glorification. Jesus ascending up into heaven, seated at the hand of the Father. Ascend back to heaven and be seated at the right hand of God. Now, Peter goes on to show that these verses, David was not speaking about himself. He was speaking about the one who was to come. Peter says to them, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David has died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. Yes, they knew that. 30 but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. So Peter points out David died was buried he's still there today turned to dust he's not talking about himself he's talking about the Holy One who was to come as a prophet and he says that David knew that God had promised him, had promised David on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on, on the throne. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16. The Lord speaking to David and says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. There would be a king on the throne of Israel perpetual or out into eternity. Let me put it that way. You'll recall that when the angel spoke to Mary before... She was pregnant. Perhaps after I can't remember right now. But it was shortly afterwards, I think it was no, i before. He will, he, referring to the one who, who she would give birth to, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So David did this and prophesied about the one who was to come. Seeing what was ahead, seeing seeing what was ahead, he David spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, abandoned to the grave, nor did not he see the king. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. So back to verse 31, David prophesied that the Christ, the Messiah, would not be abandoned to the grave. He would be in the grave, therefore the Messiah had to die, but that his body would not see decay, but rather that he would be raised to life. And he now points out, and we are all witnesses of this fact. We, the believers here, the apostles, are witnesses of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and we saw him bodily over a period of 40 days and we see uh, he is exalted in the right hand of god we saw him go back up into heaven and the fact that he is at heaven at the right hand of god the proof for that is what you now see in here he has said that he was going to send the holy spirit and he's back up at the right hand of the father and he has sent the holy spirit and so you have seen the miraculous evidence of that of these people being able to speak in foreign languages without ever having studied them. Evidence proof that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God is in heaven ruling over all. So what's the purpose? What's the meaning of this? Jesus is exalted in heaven. goes on. Verse 34, For David did not ascend to heaven, David wasn't talking about himself. He didn't go to heaven. And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your seat. Excuse me. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So now he's quoting from one of David's Psalms, and that was Psalm 110. And he says, David didn't ascend. David did not ascend to heaven, his body was buried, and yet he was told, sit at my right hand. So he's not, David, again, he's not speaking about himself, he's speaking about the one who is to come, and he's saying that the Messiah would be uh, glorified at the right hand of God. My Lord, go back and read Psalm 110 it's my Lord, and in your Bible be capitalized, L-O-R-E, in other words, the I am, talking about the Father, said to my Lord, the Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the Lord ascended to heaven, sat down right hand of the Father, and is then meant until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there would be a period of time. So here we have my chart again. If you look above my hand over here, you see the gold line going up. The birth of the Lord Jesus, the death of the Lord Jesus, and then the ascension of the Lord Jesus, Christ in glory. That's where he is now. He's going to stay there until he comes back at the end of the tribulation, sets foot on the Mount of Olives, and begins the process of judging. And his and his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Until And we are in that waiting period in between right now. Verse 36. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. All all you Israelites out there in the sound of my voice know this for sure. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter finally reaches his horrible, for them, and dramatic conclusion. The one that you crucified is Lord, that is, he is God, and the Messiah. That's the one whom you crucified. You killed him. Jesus was the Messiah. Well, the Lord was very popular during the time of his service here on earth. So many followed him. So many heard Very few Jewish people, as a percentage of the population, actually believed. Why did so many Jews have such difficulty accepting that the Lord Jesus was the Messiah that God had promised? The precise point of, of difficulty for them was that the Old Testament scriptures very clearly and repeatedly had promised that Israel would be gathered into their own land under their own king. Just read from Isaiah Chapter 11. There are many passages, many, many passages, that say things like this. I think I'll just read verses 10 through 12. In that day, the root of Jesse, descendant son of David, will stand as a banner for all peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left from his people, from Assyria from Lower Egypt from Upper Egypt from Cush from Elam from Babylonia from Hamath and from the islands beyond the sea. At the time that Peter wrote this, right? The Jews had been scattered all over the earth. He's gonna regain, regather them, bring them back to the nation of Israel. That hadn't happened. I mean, small little piece, but I mean, by and large, hardly anybody had come back to the land of Judah. And certainly,
1: there wasn't a king on the throne of Israel,
0: they were under the thumb of the Roman rule to spend just a little bit of time on this, our remaining time, probably in part because of the current events that are going on right now in the land of Israel. It is a bit of a rabbit trail off of our, our uh, going through Acts chapter 2, but I think it's probably a rabbit trail worth taking. what Russia would be. Today there has been a resurgence among Christians in the past decades and anyway, a couple decades or so of what is called covenant theology or replacement theology or suprasessionism. Super we had a conference here a number of years ago on that topic. Found this to be rather interesting. I think I'll just try to read a piece of it off here. Super, separate, super or uh, re, or replacement theology or fulfillment theology from Wikipedia. Mentions here, supersessionism is a Christian or replacement theology is a Christian theological doctrine that describes that describes the theological conviction of the Christian church that the, that the Christian church has superseded the nation of Israel, assuming the their role as God's covenant people. In other words, the nation of Israel it's not that they rejected the Messiah, they're done. God's dealings with them are done. Uh, instead, the, the church. Is, is the um, sort of New Testament Israel. They've taken over. They've superseded the place of the nation of Israel. And so all of the promises in the Old Testament, they're not going to be fulfilled literally. Israel's not going to literally come back to the land. The, uh, the, the Messiah is not going to literally reign, uh, reign on the throne of David. They will be uh, fulfilled spiritually in the church. And so this leads to all sorts of wrong conclusions. Now, there certainly are godly people, uh, who who believe this, um, but they're wrong, and and, and all, all all wrong things have their consequences. In um, this article, here it mentions that most Baptist churches, Bible churches, evangelical free churches, and so forth don't follow that. Um, in fact, there's a little line in here that I thought was a little bit interesting in, in Wikipedia. Here it says, since the 19 since the 1800s, certain Christian communities. Such as the Plymouth Brethren have espoused dispensational theology as contrasted to supersessionism and covenant theology. Uh, an article from uh, Cornerstone magazine, uh, David Dunlap writes uh, today, non evangelical churches have embraced replacement theology. Roman Catholic churches, since the time of Augustine, have originally held to this view, along with Lutheran, Presbyterian, Anglican, Methodist, and most Reformed and Calvinistic denominations, and the emergency church movement. Um, Elsewhere, uh, or I should say, that's the end of David's quote. Popular creatures of replacement theology would be the late R.C. Scroll and John Piper, along with others. Well, when he gets to this passage here, Peter does not tell the Jews listening that all of those prophecies were now to be fulfilled in a spiritual or figurative sense of the church, or that God's dealings with the nation of Israel were now ended. That's not what Peter said. Rather, Peter says that David himself understood that the Messiah would die, rise from the dead, and fulfill God's covenant or promises with the nation of Israel and sit on David's throne ruling over Israel. How could Jesus be the Messiah if he had to restore the kingdom to Israel and rule on David's throne? Let's take a few minutes to try to transport ourselves back a century or two or more and uh, just stand in the shoes of people living back then. For centuries, the Catholic Church, before the Protestant Reformation, taught that these prophecies were to be fulfilled in the church, that is, in the Catholic Church. And that has a lot of consequences. Then during the Reformation, uh, when justification by faith alone was directly recovered, but there was no real change in their understanding of prophecy. In the 1800s, John Darby, a former clergyman in the Church of England, and others and others studying the scriptures together, prophecy in particular, began to take the scriptures, rather than interpreting them through this lens of spiritual fulfillment, simply read the scriptures and understood them as they were originally intended to be understood. And they took them, they took them at face value and concluded that God was not done yet with Israel, that the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel would be fulfilled literally. And, and that, that that is the clear, natural way of interpreting those scriptures. You kind of have to do a little bit of a headstand to make it come out any different. This was a very natural understanding. Because of this very natural understanding of Bible prophecy, this developed into what is now called dispensationalism. And then with the publication of the Scholesfield Reference Bible in 1909 and the establishment of Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924 with dispensational truth at at the center of it, these uh, convictions, uh, these understandings became widespread throughout most evangelical churches in the Western world and carried the missionary lands as well. In the United States today, most, what we would just simply call good Bible teaching churches, the majority, we have the correct gospel, Uh, The majority uh, would would teach dispensationalism today as a result of this going all the way back to, to the 1800s, early 1800s, in fact. What were they teaching? In summary, someday Israel would be regathered and become a nation again with its own government, not ruled over by any Gentile power. The temple would be rebuilt and temple worship would be restored. As we put ourselves ourselves back in the mindset that we're in the late 1800s, early 1900s, think back to Israel's history. In 587 BC, Judah was conquered by Babylon. And that was the end of Jewish rule in the land of Israel. From that point forward, the Jews would always be ruled over by a Gentile power. First, the Babylonians. Then the Persians. Then the Greeks. And then in 63 BC, the Romans took over. And in 70 AD... The Romans crushed a Jewish revolt, destroyed the temple, and according to Josephus, Josephus killed 1.1 million Jews in the land of Judea. Some people think that that's quite an exaggeration, but even if you took half that number, it's a massive slaughter of Jews at that period of time. He, they enslaved ninety-seven thousand. Everybody probably agrees that that's probably a correct term. About forty thousand survived. Many had fled during during that siege, where they besieged the city and then eventually took over and destroyed uh, the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And the, the those that remained scattered themselves far away from this focus of persecution, into Europe, in, into, uh, you know, to, to the east, where many of were already were in, in the region today of Iran this is a modern map, even going further down into Africa. The, the Jewish people were, were scattered far and wide, uh, very, very few of them uh, remaining in, in Judea. And Rome, being so irritated with the Jews and their rebellion against the, the empire of Rome, renamed the land of Judea. Been called Israel, been called Judea. They renamed it in 130 AD as a stick in their face Syria Palestinian. In other words, Syrian Palestine. I just want to point out oh, and and Palestine was the reference to the Philistines. So basically calling it the Philistine portion of Syria. The most serious is directly to the north of Israel. There has never been a, there there is no country called Palestine. If you look at a map, it's Israel. It's not Palestine. There has never been a country called Palestine. There is no connection to the people that are called Palestinians today with the Philistines. The Philistines were largely wiped out by the Israelites and then the few remaining would have intermarried and inter, just kind of disappeared as a, as, as a traceable lineage of people. A hundred years ago, 1923, anyone living in the region of Palestine and still you know, had that name, that region was Palestine, but it wasn't a country, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, anyone who lived in the region of Palestine was called a Palestinian. You would have referred to yourself as either a Jewish Palestinian or an Arab Palestinian. The people who are called Palestinians today are Arabs, whose ancestral origins are from the many Arab nations that surround Israel. And so, since, since 587 BC, the Jews lost their freedom and were ruled over by Gentile powers. I want to say, too, um, uh, you know, there are but some of them are Christians as well. Um, Since 70 AD, when the the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews have been scattered geographically all over the world. And in addition to being scattered all over the world, they lost their language. They were scattered all over the world and they learned the language of the people around them, at least the next generation did, so that Hebrew became effectively a dead language. Nobody spoke Hebrew. For hundreds and hundreds of years, nobody spoke Hebrew. It became only two places. Occasionally might be, uh, be uh, little bits and pieces of it probably in, in the G- Jewish liturgy. And there would be a few university professors who would know the language of, of Hebrew. And that was it. They lost their land. They lost their language. Almost nobody spoke Hebrew. The situation remained that way for a long time. And the Jews were regularly persecuted in various parts of the world. And had to flee uh, from one place to another. You'll, you'll see that there was there was really no place for them to go. I have this chart here on the on Jewish population that I found interesting. You'll notice that in 1900, so that's prior to World War One, in 1900 there were about just about nine million Jews living in Europe, a few in Asia. Um, 332,000 in Africa, and then about 1.5 million in the United States. And at that time, we got a chart. Well, I got a chart a little bit here. Around 1900, you probably had roughly 50,000 million in Palestine. 9 million in Europe, 1.5 million in America, and smattering around the world. It was 1900. Where... Here we get to 1914. The green part is the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was largely originated there in Turkey. It was Arabic, and it was Muslim. You can see Mecca and Medina down over here as part of the Ottoman Empire. Nobody in the 1800s was thinking about or talking about or anything about, I'm talking about any political figure, Israel becoming a nation again. Nobody. It was it was ridiculous. Uh, all over the place. No language. Uh, no connection to the land, and occupied by the Muslim. And really, with nowhere to go, unless you get to the United States, and the United States was very restrictive on immigration at the time. Um, you know my my chart. I have here A.E. Booth, the chart of the course of time from eternity to eternity, originally published in 1896 by the laws of Brothers. That chart was originally published in 1896. I'm going to zoom in here on the millennium. Look at look, look what they have 10 tribes restored, Israel, one nation in the land. This was crazy talk to most people. There was no earthly reason to believe that that was ever going to happen. There's only one reason that they would come to this conclusion. Scripture said so. You know, the references. About it. Scripture said it was going to happen. Scripture said it was going to happen, and so they believed it. And and as this teaching got disseminated, many people began to believe and understand that as well. Um. Yeah. The 1830s, you had the Power Score Prophecy Conferences in which dispensationalism was was fleshed out. 1896, the publication of A. A Booth's chart. 1909, the Schofield Reference Bible was published. Still, no mention of any politician of the idea of Israel becoming a nation. World War I begins. England is drawn into the war. The Ottoman Empire is on the side of Germany against the Allies. World War I begins in, in, in 1914. Before the war is over, there is something called the Balfour Declaration. One when, when, when English person in charge of this sort of thing says, we need to find a homeland for the Jewish people. That's the first time any person of any significance mentioned Israel having a homeland, 1917. Uh, what is that? It's eight years after the public- publication of the Scofield Reference Bible. Nin- eight, 1920, the British took control of the region of Palestine in World War I. Uh, And and then in 1924, shortly thereafter, Dallas Theological Seminary is formed. And in 1947, at the end of World War II, Israel becomes a nation. Now, my grandfather was born, I think, in 1895. Is that correct? 1893, my grandfather was born. 1893. So uh, my father was born in uh, 1925. So my father, at the time Israel became a nation, would have been 23 years old. um let me go back to here this population sure. notice notice they're under Europe and you probably can't read the numbers 1909 million Jews 1942, just before World War II nine million 9.2 million Jews in Europe 1973.2 million Jews in Europe Holocaust and Post World War II mass migration to the newly formed uh, co- or that was uh, yeah newly formed country of Israel, um, and now about one point three million Jews in, in in Europe. Where are the rest of the Jews? Well, let me find it here. You've got a smattering of of, of got one point three million Jews today effectively in Europe. About seven million Jews in Israel and about seven million Jews in the United States. That's where and a smattering of, of Jewish people around the world. This huge movement for Jews to go to the land of Israel. Dramatic. Nine million Jews down to 1.3 million Jews in, in, in Europe. Uh, many of the countries that had Jews, there's no Jewish population at all anymore. They, they've gone and they've, they've returned to Israel and they continue to return to Israel. Never in the history of the world has a distinct people lost their land, been dispersed away from their land, and regained it. Never in the history of the world has a distinct people lost their language. Their language became functionally dead and they had decided when a nation was formed. we got people returning from every country on earth. We need to have a common language. What language do we have? Well, English, of course. That makes the no most sense. Most people can speak English. One guy spoke up and said, um, my understanding from watching YouTube, uh, one guy in, in, in the council spoke up and said, would it be possible to be able to speak Hebrew? Silence. I don't know. He speaks Hebrew. Let's call up the university. Professor said, yes, we can do it. Radio programs, TV programs later. Teaching people how to speak Hebrew until the, the language of, of Hebrew was restored. Israel without a without land and language for 2,500 years and their land and their language has been restored. It is an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. When you read the Schofield Reference Bible, you are reading from a man who wrote it before there was a nation or even a thought of being a nation. It's quite amazing to read, read the Schofield reference, with that understand, reference Bible and his notes with that understanding. That was written before there was a nation or the thought of Israel being restored to a nation anywhere else in the world other than those who held to what the Bible has to say. My father was 22 years old at the time, and the old brothers, when I was a younger person here, would frequently speak of it. I mean, but, you know, I was probably, I'm thinking, like, say I'm 12 years old. That would have been 1974. I mean, that seemed like an eternity ago. It was less than 30 years, actually, you know? So for them, it was all fresh in their minds. My grandfather. Here and Glazer the Younger speaking. This is Glazer the Ancient. My grandfather, uh, was kind of famous for frequently speaking about you know, he would say, he would quote in the Bible study if you ask people, uh, what what the two most the, the biggest events in the 19, 1900s were, what would they be? Most people would answer the two world wars, but as a believer, it's the formation of the nation of Israel. And so, now is the completely unscripted portion of my, my message. I just want to ask Wendy. You were born in 1932. You got it. Okay, that would have put you at 16 years old in 1948. Right. Do you remember the Nation of Israel being re- being formed? Uh, vaguely. Vaguely. Okay, <laughs> vaguely. But I lived uh, in that's right. You lived in Europe at that time in in Germany, and right. where where the news about it about the Jews wasn't wasn't a big deal, but this was a huge deal. I think we're say something. On Back. Well, the Lord's coming soon. This is prophecy fulfilled in our day. In other words, the Bible's promises. We didn't even see this coming. And here it is. Almost in terms of, of the history of the world, in a blink of an eye and a flash, Israel's back on the map. Never to be removed again. Um, and... Uh, you know when we when we look at the oops, when we look at this here, right? What 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 hasn't happened yet? Yeah. Well, the Lord hasn't come back in power and great glory, but the Scriptures say it's going to happen. It's going to happen. He's going to reign on the throne of David, and, and and His glory will be shed over all the earth. We can believe it, and we've seen the first part of it already. Though there were people who believed it before there was any hint of it, Lord's God's uh, word will be fulfilled. Well, I plan to sing a hymn, but we are out of time. We'll close there. We can take uh, confidence in the word of God that what God has said, it shall happen. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious future uh, that we can look forward to and that uh, that the, your son, the Lord Jesus, who suffered so much here on earth, will one day have his rightful place the whole world will own him as Lord. We look forward to that time and bless him even now. Amen. Amen. Amen.